This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the last in our month of Best Picture winners with On the Waterfront from 1954, directed by Elia Kazan, written by Bud Schulberg, and starring Marlon Brando, Carl Malden, Eva Marie Saint, Rod Steiger, and Lee J. Cobb. This movie was nominated for 12 Academy Awards and won nine, including Best Picture, Director, and Actor. So, Dad, this was your choice for the 1950s. We've already visited two Best Picture winners from the 50s so far. Kudos if you can name either of them. (laughs) What made you choose this particular selection? Okay, well, first off, it is Bridge Over the River Kwai. Correct. 1957. Correct. And 1951. No. 52? Yes. The Greatest Show on Earth. Yes. So, I get kudos, huh? I suppose. Yeah. Well, if you haven't figured this out, okay, all four of the selections that I picked are films that I like, that I enjoy, but that I am not going to go, you know, I should watch this tonight. I figured this is a good way to force myself to watch really good films that I'm not going to just kind of find as comfort films that I'm going to go to on a given night when I just want to relax. Way to sell our product, Dad. (laughs) Well, they're great films. It's just, but I mean, they're great films and, and they should be watched. It's just not going to be to my, my, you know, I'm not going to go to these uh, automatically. There's certain films that I will watch over and over and over again. These are films that I kind of am remiss that I haven't seen again lately. And I thought this is a great opportunity to force myself to sit down and be patient and watch some good films that are not just necessarily going to be on my comfort list. Fair enough. So from a historical perspective, can you put us in the shoes of the era of the 1950s with unionized mob corruption? Yes. In 1949, the um, United Municipal Workers contacted Congress, sent a letter to Congress indicated that member unions were being infiltrated by the mafia and by organized crime. They created a committee, an investigative committee headed by Senator Kefauver from Tennessee. The Kefauver committee hearings were were televised and they were some of the most popular television, daytime television out there. People would take days off to watch the Kefauver hearings. In fact, by the time it was said and done, Senator Kefauver was considered one of the most respected men in the world. So they did a lot of investigation, and it was primarily around gambling, and then it advanced into drugs and using union dues and money ultimately to fund criminal enterprises and activities. 
if you're not aware, it ultimately ended up being wider. And at the time, Robert Kennedy, who was just an intern, ended up investigating the Teamsters and Jimmy Hoffa. And that bled into the 60s when Robert Kennedy was the attorney general. So this was a long process. At the same time, you also had the Red Scare in the late 50s and Senator McCarthy asserting that there were communists hidden throughout government. And so when the House Committee on Un-American Activities started investigating, Ila Kazan, the director of this movie, was one of those who had been implicated as being a or a member of the Communist Party, who not only testified but named names, and he became kind of a persona non grata for a while in Hollywood. This film is in part his reprieve, his statement as to why he gave names, and it's kind of interwoven in the whole story. That gives us some good historical context. We'd obviously talked about Kazan going back to the previous Best Picture winner and Best Director award he received for Gentleman's Agreement, which was prior to his testimony. But what is your relationship to this movie? So this was a film that I had heard about while I was in college and in law school. I had not seen. I found it about the time I was either in law school or right out of law school and watched it for the first time. Thought it was an amazing film. Uh, have gone back and watched it probably two or three times since, but it's probably been 10 years or more since I saw the film, at least. So any longtime listeners to the show know very well that I have watched every Best Picture winner at this point, and I had a project to watch every Best Picture winner. But this also was a highly ranked AFI Top 100 film on both lists, the 1998 and then the 10th Anniversary 2007 edition. And so this movie came about partly due to obligation, but also for the amount of times that I heard it praised as one of the seminal acting performances of all time. I think that term is going to be thrown around a lot this evening because the amount of different directors, actors, industry people that have often cited this as the seminal acting performance is too numerous to probably count. I think a lot of things stem from this, particularly when it comes to the actor studio. This is the film that really put their studio on the map as a challenge to traditional acting and putting it up as what might be the next generation of the largest stars in Hollywood. And most of the character actors out of this movie in particular are all alumnus of the actor studio, particularly Carl Malden, Eva Marie Saint, and Lee J. Cobb. So I come from it, or I came to it from that. The problem for me has always been that to me this played out very similarly to just about any other 50s movies that we've seen that I didn't necessarily understand why everyone said it was such a great acting performance. But then you start digging into the background and what Brando particularly puts into this performance that's unlike anything that had come before it, and you start to see the nuance 
of his performance that really is why it's reflective on the acting community and the way it is and why it's so revered. So I come from it from that perspective. I think I saw this movie maybe 10 years ago the first time. It's like one of those big, gigantic best picture winners like Lawrence of Arabia or The Godfather that everybody puts on the great American classic films list, but that not a lot of people probably in the general population have seen. And so I've seen it maybe, I think, a half dozen times at this point. This is the first time where I really started to see some of the mastery of it. So what is this movie about then? It's doing what is right, even if it's not the most popular thing to do. I don't know if... that That's too simple. Okay. Then you try. Well, I'm not even sure that Terry comes to the realization that he needs to do the right thing for the sake of actually doing the right thing. For as many different theorizations and case studies have as have been done on this film, particularly from the angle that Terry becomes somewhat of a Christ-like figure inside of a somewhat Judeo-Christian epic of sorts. He is a very flawed character who I think only is really pushed to the edge of trying to do what's right because he's struggling to begin with, but then the murder of his brother sends him in the opposite way. And so really, to me, 75% of this movie is shown as him being in the struggle, as opposed to the way you phrased it. You would think that he's trying to do the right thing from the start and just receiving pushback. He really doesn't do the right thing until the very end of this movie. And so I think it has more to do with the struggle that he's going through internally that he doesn't agree with what's going on, but he hasn't found the courage or the confidence to actually do the right thing. Well, I don't know if he's even knows what the right thing is. I, I suppose, especially given the background that we get on his character as a young child and what he eventually grew up in where Johnny Friendly kind of replaces a more father figure type for him. So I don't know if that's necessarily the easiest for him, that he has the greatest moral compass, particularly when it talks about his personal philosophy of do unto them before they do unto you. Yeah. So I don't know how much that's reflected in the movie necessarily, but eventually he gets to the point that us as a general audience want him to make and, of course, is rewarded for it in the final scene. So let's give the audience at home a little bit more background on this movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Doc worker Terry Malloy, Marlon Brando, had been an up-and-coming boxer until ordered to throw a fight by powerful mob boss Johnny Friendly, Lee J. Cobb. Terry, now working for Friendly, helps him set up another longshoreman, Joey Doyle, who is talking to the waterfront crime commissioner. Not knowing that he was helping Friendly in Joey's murder, Terry's conscience is disturbed, and he starts questioning his involvement. Circumstances place Terry around Joey's sister, Edie, Eva Marie Saint, and a romance develops. This relationship, together with the advice and support of a streetwise priest, Father Barry, Carl Malden, 
pushes Terry to decide his path. Does he stand up to Friendly and turn his back on Friendly's right-hand man, Terry's brother, Charlie, Rod Steiger, risking his own life and safety? Or does Terry follow the code and remain silent? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Ilya Kazan as director, Bud Schulberg as writer, Leonard Bernstein as composer, Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy, Carl Malden as Father Pete Berry, Lee J. Cobb as Michael J. Skelly, a.k.a. Johnny Friendly, Rod Steiger as Charlie the Gent Malloy, Eva Marie Saint as Edie Doyle, Pat Henning as Timothy J. K.O. Dugan, John F. Hamilton as Pop Doyle, Ben Wagner as Joey Doyle, James Westerfield as Big Mac, Fred Gwynn as Slim Sakulovich, Leif Erickson as lead investigator for Crime Commission, and Martin Balsam as Gillette, secondary investigator for Crime Commission, uncredited. Recognition for this movie, On the Waterfront was released on July 28, 1954. Upon its release, the film received positive reviews from critics and was a commercial success, earning an estimated $9.6 million at the box office in 1954. It currently holds a 99% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 91 score on Metacritic, and a 4.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Through his portrayal of Terry Malloy, Brando popularized method acting and conclusively exemplified the power of Stanislavski's based approach in cinema. Praising Brando in 2004, director Martin Scorsese noted that when you watch his work in On the Waterfront, you're watching the purest poetry imaginable in dynamic motion. Kazan, the director of the film, would later write in his book, If there is a better performance by a man in the history of film in America, I don't know what it is. Al Pacino, recounting his own memories on first seeing On the Waterfront, told Playboy in a 1979 interview that he concentrated more on the lead actor than the film itself. I couldn't move. I couldn't leave the theater. I'd never seen the like of it. Anthony Hopkins said, When you see Brando in the famous cab scene in On the Waterfront, it's still breathtaking. In a eulogy for Brando, Jack Nicholson described his display probably the height of any age and added that you just couldn't take your eyes off the guy. He was spellbinding. On the Waterfront received 12 Oscar nominations, including Best Original Score for Leonard Bernstein, the only movie score he did that was not an adaptation of one of his own stage shows, and three Best Supporting Actor nominations for Lee J. Cobb, Carl Malden, and Rod Steiger. The film won nine Oscars for Best Picture, Director for Elia Kazan, Actor for Marlon Brando, Supporting Actress for Eva Marie Saint, Story and Screenplay by Bud Schulberg, Black and White Art Direction, Black and White Cinematography, and Film Editing. In 1995, it made it on the Vatican's list of 45 greatest films. It has been recognized by the American Film Institute on the following lists. AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies at number 8. AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains, with Terry Malloy as the number 23 hero of all time, and Johnny Friendly as a nominated villain. It was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes, with, You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. 
I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am, as the number three quote of all time. AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores at number 22, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers at number 36, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition at number 19, and it was a nominated film in the gangster category for AFI's 10 Top 10 list. In 1989, On the Waterfront was one of the first 25 films to be selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Did you know? In his biography of Elia Kazan, Richard Schickel described how Kazan used a ploy to entice Marlon Brando to do the movie. He had Carl Malden direct a scene from the film with an up-and-coming fellow actor from the Actors Studio playing the Terry Malloy lead role. They figured the competitive Brando would not be eager to see such a major role handed to some new screen heartthrob. The ploy worked, especially since the competition had come in the form of a guy named Paul Newman? Yes. Did you know? The leading characters were based on real people. Terry Malloy was based on longshoreman and whistleblower Anthony DiVincenzo. Father Barry was based on waterfront priest John M. Corridan. Johnny Friendly was based on mobster Albert Anastasia. The hat and coat worn by Carl Malden in the film actually belonged to Father Corridan. Did you know? Arthur Miller was approached by Elia Kazan to write the screenplay and did so, but later pulled it when the FBI and studio bosses required him to make the gangsters communists. Did you know? On the Waterfront is widely known to be an act of expiation on the part of Elia Kazan for naming names to HUAC during the Joseph McCarthy witch hunts of the 1950s. What is less widely reported is that Kazan intended it as a direct attack at his former close friend Arthur Miller, who had been openly critical of Kazan's actions. Specifically, it was a direct response to Miller's play, The Crucible. Did you know? As part of his contract, Marlon Brando only worked until 4 p.m. every day and then would leave to go see his analyst. Brando's mother had recently died, and the conflicted young actor was in therapy to resolve his issues with his parents. Interestingly, for the film's classic scene between Rod Steiger and Brando in the back of the cab, all of Steiger's close-ups were filmed after Brando had left for the day, so Brando's lines were read by one of the crew members. For many years, Steiger, who had actually stayed during Brando's close-ups to help him put in a better performance, remained very bitter that Brando didn't return the favor, and often mentioned it in interviews. Did you know? Grace Kelly turned down the role of Edie Doyle, deciding to make Rear Window instead. Did you know? The scene where Eva Marie Saint drops her glove and Marlon Brando picks it up and puts it on his hand was unplanned. Saint dropped her glove accidentally in rehearsal, and Brando improvised the rest. Elia Kazan loved the new business and asked them to repeat it for the take. Did you know? Thomas Handley, who played Terry Malloy's teenage friend Tommy, was hired by the production to feed the pigeons on set. His father, a longshoreman, had been blackballed for anti-union activities and disappeared when Hanley was four months old. Elia Kazan and Bud Schulberg had him audition for the role and coaxed an angry response out of him by calling his father a rat. He was paid $500 for his role, but never really acted again. He went on to become a longshoreman and in 2002 was elected recording secretary of his union after yet another corrupt leadership was ousted. Did you know? 
Shortly after the film's debut in 1954, the AFL-CIO expelled the East Coast Longshoremen's Union because it was still run by the mob. Did you know? Tony Galento, Tammy Morello, and Abe Simon, who played Johnny Friendly's heavies, were all former professional boxers and opponents of Joe Lewis for the heavyweight world title. Simon fought the Brown Bomber twice and was knocked out in round 13 in the first fight and round 6 in the second. Galento and Morello fought Lewis once apiece and shared similar fates. Galento was KO'd in round four and Morello in round one. With that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we get back to the show, next week we will finally be getting to a movie that we've wanted to cover since the beginning of the show, but have been too scared to touch until now. Blazing Saddles, from 1974, directed by Mel Brooks, Gene Wilder, Cleavon Little, Harvey Korman, Madeline Kahn, and Alex Karras. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Let's go to best performance then. Dad, what do you have down? Brando, when you start thinking about how he portrayed this and how, as the film went through, and how some of his mannerisms very subtly changed, towards the end, he seemed to lose a lot of the the tics, the, the body language, the stuff that shows him to be a beaten down man. It, it's, a, it's almost a, an irony of the fact that in this climactic scene, he's beaten and almost left for dead. But yet that's the, that's the moment where he is no longer the timid, beaten down man he's now rising above that to become defiant and a leader and there's so many nuances of brando's performance in general that that are just so subtle you mentioned the 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 scene with the glove brando had a technique or a concept of doing things like that to humanize and to try to portray characters more as real people than as the people written into the script. And so he was always looking for ways of doing things, how to wear a jacket, how to present himself, how to sit. I mean, even when he's sitting at the bar after his his brother's murdered, he's sitting in a way that is both nemesing and sympathetic at the same time. There's just so many little things and subtleties that you see it's so easy to see where people realize that this this was a, a performance that was beyond anything that had been really done in film before. He does go through a very emotional swing when it comes to the full length of the movie from at the beginning where he reluctantly is asking questions and just trying to sort through his own feelings to by the end, basically accusing both Johnny Friendly and his brother for doing him in because they didn't have his better interests at heart. It's hard to go in any other direction. I tried, but given that this is held up as the seminal acting performance in the history of movies, I think it would be a disservice to him to go with anyone else as a best performer. Well, think about the scene in the cab with Steiger. Okay. 
most actors would have portrayed that. Your brother is basically telling you to toe the line, and when you're apprehensive, he pulls a gun on you. Okay? Most actors are going to react in a hostile or a def- or defensive. Brando played it as being sympathetic. Like, Oh, no, I don't find that at all. I instead would think that he's playing it more as disappointed. He knows that the, his brother's not actually going to fire on him, and so he's able to just push the gun out of the way. But he's definitely not. That's not what I meant at all. I meant he's almost sympathetic at his brother. It's his brother. He's he's like, why? And you could feel the 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 hurt, the fact that the two of them have let this situation destroy their personal relationship, their brotherhood, and he's he's almost treating it like Charlie is somebody that he pities because. He, he has to act in this way because he's caught between the life he has and his love of his own brother. And he almost pities him. Even just the way Brando says, oh, Charlie, there's a pity. He pities his brother for being in that situation. And, and Steiger, really, and I, I did not pick him as my secondary performance, but Steiger's performance was so... You could tell that, or the performance he had was so haunting because he is so, he is caught in such a quandary, such a uh, dichotomy between his brother and that. And that taxi scene just brings this out. And both actors were so wonderful in that performance. So, who did you go then with your best secondary nomination? I went with Kazan. His mastery of the camera angles and such that were done. The one scene where where even Marie Saint and Brando are both kind of developing the relationship. And she comes and says, or basically says, you need to, if you know something, you basically need to talk about it. They put her in a camera angle so that it's almost like she's hovering over him. There's a a level of angelicness to it. The fact that Malden is lifted out of the hall, like he's being lifted up to God, rising from the depths of this hell based on the fact that he was able to confront the longshoreman. There's just so many little things, so many little touches. The fact that when the reveal is given and Brando comes clean with Eva Marie Saint as to his knowledge of what's going on, the, the whistle from the ship drowns out the words because the words don't matter. What you're, You'll know what they're talking about. It's the body language and the reaction that really matters. And so it's just these little subtleties that were done. For the most part, Kazan stayed out of the way and let some really fine actors act. But yet he made up for a lack of real hands-on directing of the actors by setting the scenes, setting the camera angles, and setting how things were to be presented And I thought he did a a masterful job of directing, in part by that, the camera angles and setting up the scenes and everything, but also by staying out of the way of the actual actors themselves. I went with him also as my best secondary, but it has more to do with 
all of the things that he did to get this, which was essentially a passion project for him, put together. When you want to talk about casting a lot of the people that he helped find and pretty much prop up through the actor studio and then giving them, some of them, their very first break in this movie, which obviously became a big movie. Or you want to talk about finding Bud Schulberg, remelding the script, melding it with his own vision of where he wanted to go with a lot of the true story behind this, because this was somewhat based on a very true story from a couple of years prior with something similar that had happened on the docks in New York at the time. I just think that given the amount of good performances that happened and the amount of total Oscars that were won or amount of awards it is reflective on the person who ended up putting everything together as a performer that I think you have to kind of go with him as your best secondary. Most charismatic? Brando. Every film. Okay, and he had so, he had not that many film roles. When you stop and think about it, he did not do that many films. He did some of them were absolutely memorable. Street in our car, named Desire, on the waterfront. Julius Caesar? Yes, he was in Last Tango in Paris. That's not until much later in his career. I understand, but he had kind of a down period there for a while. And then uh, The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. And You forgot Superman. Uh, well, that's one I want to forget. But anyway, I, I didn't think it was that great. Okay. I really didn't. He created all superhero film archetypes after it. <laughs> okay, that's fine. You can be a, you can have your opinion. I just Anyway, whenever he was on screen, he, I don't know why he had such a presence, but he did. You just were drawn to him. I went in a completely different direction. As you know, I've had my struggles trying to find the excellence within his performance here. And while I can kind of point it out from an academic angle, I'm just, I may, might be the only person that's not drawn to him on screen. For me, it's one of my favorite sub characters or character actors in at least this film. And one of my other favorite films of all time for me, it's Lee J Cobb. He dominates every scene he's in. The power he exudes, the ferocity, it's just captivating to me on every level. I think he is a terrifying villain in both this and 12 Angry Men, and if those were his only two performances, he got his money's worth for a lifetime of being an actor. There's There were so many options, because again, I thought Rod Steiger was, was wonderful. I thought Eva Marie Saint was wonderful, and I absolutely love Carl Malden. I love every time I've seen him in a film. He was great. Best scene. I have down Joey's murder, Terry walks Edie home, church meeting, Terry and Edie's first date, Dugan's death, I could have been a contender, the crime commission, and Terry takes on friendly. Did I miss any? Terry confesses. Boy, I just had a hard time thinking that was very notable. Well, it is a rather a pivotal scene. 
it kind of defines their relationship or alters their relationship. There's a certain level of naivete in their relationship until that moment. Now it's become clear that he has more knowledge, connection. There's more ramifications to what's going on. And she now has to deal with the fact that she loves him, but that if he doesn't provide information, he's protecting those who murdered her brother. And I think that that the fact that she can't handle that and she's, you know, the screaming, covering her ears and whatever uh, of that scene is quite uh, significant. So then what then is the best scene? Well, I think it's the taxi cab scene. Because again, I think the performances I've said of Brando and Steiger were just phenomenal. There was a gentleness between them that you could tell that they were uncomfortable that there was a rem- that they were morose about where their the situation had placed them. The fact that Terry understands that he wasn't protected by his brother, and I think Steiger portrays that he understands exactly what Terry is saying, and that uh, he understands too that he's right. And that scene plays so well; it, it's by far you know the best done scene. It's to me the most indelible scene because that's the one everybody remembers more than anything. I understand where it's place is in movie history and how much everybody else focuses on that. But to me, that scene is forgettable and I don't understand why everybody has such a focus on that as being the pivotal scene. I made it my most indelible by default, but for me, the ending is the best scene of the movie Terry taking on Friendly and getting into that fight and then walking through the door of the docks in order to unload the ship. Everything that goes down in that last maybe 15-minute scene to me is the absolute height of this movie. And for everything that he has as an actor to coming down the plank, lowering himself onto the level of Johnny Friendly in order to redeem himself and then finally walking through the door his own resurrection of sorts. I think to me, that is the most frenetic and energetic scene of the movie and really is the one that makes you kind of stand on edge. I think it took a little less acting on the part. It was more action than acting. And so that's why I didn't go with it. I don't know. I I understand where you might come from at the beginning part of that scene, but by the end where he really gets the trying to stand up and walk on his own and make it through the door, I think to me that requires a certain level of acting that was not apparent before. I mean, right now, if you're talking, okay, walk like you're basically punch drunk, I just about think anybody could make do with that because they have so many angles and examples to draw upon. At the time... How many people were being depicted as basically punch drunk on film? The problem I have with the scene, and I guess is in some part this, which is it doesn't hold up to me as well because it's so contrived. And I mean, it's the, it's the expected ending, but the ending that's, I mean, it's too predictable. And so to that extent, that's one of the reasons why I didn't give it as high a marks as you did, I think. Well, 
I nominated it for my favorite scene because I don't find it predictable at all. I find that to be, yes, the necessary conclusion, but that could have gone in a whole host of different ways. I also find it to be probably the best directed scene of the movie due to the amount of expertise that they had from the quick cuts at the end to how he's walking to all of the acting performances that are within it. I think it might be Lee J. Cobb's most powerful scene. To me, that was the best and my favorite scene, even if I had to go with most indelible being the taxicab confrontation. Let's go with that. Okay. So what was your favorite scene then? Actually, it's the scene where where, where Terry and, and uh, Edie first start walking through the park and the glove. He picks up the glove. That, that scene, there's just a sweetness about that and a development of a relationship that I thought was so well portrayed. And what was really or what is a violent film to put that, that no matter what the circumstances are in your life, you can find beauty and develop some level of love, compassion, and relationship with another human. That just stood out to me in sharp contrast to the rest of the film. And so for me, that was my favorite scene because it humanized the characters. And I already gave my most indelible as being the Taxi cab confrontation. What was yours? The taxi cab. All right. So that puts us at our second break. We will be right back. Before we get back to the show, you can still sign up for our newsletter at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. All right, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Unfortunately, we do. Um, We have a couple. Jack Knight, uh, American comedian, television writer, and actor. He uh, wrote for Blackish, was in Bust Down, and uh, also was involved with Big Mouth. Only 28, unfortunately. Him passing away at such a young age, there was quite a big outpouring in the comedian community for him, and he apparently was very beloved. I did not know much of his work other than the fact that I have seen episodes of Big Mouth, and obviously I watched the entirety of Blackish. So for him to be a writer on at least one of the programs that I've spent the last maybe five, six years watching is a, a little bit disheartening, sad, depressing. I don't know if there's been a cause of death released quite yet, but to see someone pass this young obviously uh, takes you aback a little bit. Unfortunately, it was self-inflicted gunshot. Oh, I had not seen that. Yeah. Which does lead me to point out that I think either last week or early this week, we did have a national hotline that the government has actually produced It is 988 for suicide prevention and is the new suicide prevention hotline. Very similar to 911, but this will be 988. So if you know anyone who is in mental distress or just a number to know for down the line, if you ever find yourself in a bad situation, please reach out to that hotline for help. 
We also lost uh, Mickey Rooney Jr., 77. He had been primarily a child actor and had done a few other things later on and had become a somewhat of an institution in Hollywood for some different projects later in life. But he had been part of the Mickey Mouse Club, and uh, he passed. Um, his father, uh, Mickey Rooney Sr., I think we lost about three or four years ago. He was in his mid-90s, I think, at the time, so... Unfortunately, um, his passing uh, he will uh, have an impact along a line because I guess he was fairly well popular within circles within Hollywood. Certainly, I think his dad passed away within the last five years, and obviously a notable passing just from the standpoint that Hollywood and the industry has lost another great father-son combo. And with that... We recognize both of these performers for their work and their contributions to TV and movies with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best lines. Dad, what do you have up first? Father Barry, D&D, what's that? K.O. Dugan, deaf and dumb. No matter how much we hate the torpedoes, we don't rat. You know, I don't remember that line being in there, but I'm glad you nominated it because, honestly, I kept forgetting what the hell that was. And my obvious thoughts, being a member of my current generation, is Dungeons and Dragons came up every time. <laughs> obviously yeah. very different. Yes. My first one up, Terry. Conscience, that stuff can drive you nuts. Edie, which side are you with? Terry. Me? I'm with me, Terry. Terry again. Hey, you want to hear my philosophy of life? Do it to him before he does it to you. Terry. But you know, if I spill, my life ain't worth a nickel, Father Barry. And how much is your soul worth if you don't? Father Barry. Some people think the crucifixion only took place on Calvary. They better wise up. Taking Joey Doyle's life to stop him from testifying is a crucifixion. And dropping a sling on K.O. Dugan because he was ready to spill his guts tomorrow, that's a crucifixion. And every time the mob puts the pressure on a good man, tries to stop him from doing his duty as a citizen, it's a crucifixion. And anybody who sits around and lets it happen, keeps silent about something he knows that happened, shares the guilt of it just as much as the Roman soldier who pierced the flesh of our Lord to see if he was dead. Terry to Johnny. You think you're God Almighty, but you know what you are? You're a cheap, lousy, dirty, stinking mug. And I'm glad what I'd done to you. Hear that? I'm glad what I'd done. Charlie, you're getting on. You're pushing 30. You know, it's time to think about getting some ambition. Terry, I always figured I'd live a bit longer without it. Charlie. Look, kid, I... How much you weigh, son? When you weighed 168 pounds, you were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Kahn. And that skunk we got you for a manager, he brought you along too fast. Terry. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. Remember that night in the garden? You came down to my dressing room and you said... Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night? 
I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors on the ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Belucaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me, just a little bit, so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Oh, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. You have any others? No. All right. Stanley Rubric time. Legacy is up first. This is known as a great movie and the seminal acting performance in Hollywood history. It's on every list of great American classics and generally thought as one of the best movies of all time. Its accolades, as mentioned before, are plenty, and I can't give this less than a five for the industry as a result. I might even give it more if we could, especially given how many fives we give for the industry anymore. For the audience, though, unless you saw it in a film class, how many people actually know of, let alone have seen this film? I think this unfortunately runs aground in the eyes of the general population, and so I feel I'm going to go just slightly above the median here with a three on that end for an eight overall. To be perfectly honest, I wrestled with this. I agreed with you completely on all aspects of the fight. It, it set about an entire line of the actor studio and the method actors throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So it's perfect five. But your mother only saw it because I made her watch it. I don't think your uh, sister Allison's ever seen it. Sarah said she saw it only because you were uh, you made her watch it. This is not a film that people go, oh, yes, I love this film, or yes, I remember watching it. I, I think the film is way out of the scope, thought. Consciousness? Yeah, consciousness of the public. So I went with a two. And the only reason I'm going with a two is because there are film geeks like us who so pound up the the or beat the drum for this movie that it keeps it somewhat active among the public but this is not something that people just flock to frankly sarah got a fairly significant film education as she was staying with me for six months during the pandemic and there weren't any sports on. So what else am I supposed to do other than teach her basically all of the great classic films of Americana? Yeah. But I don't think you can use Allison as an example for much of anything. If it doesn't appear on Disney+, Plus, she probably hasn't seen it. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't go quite that far because... Obviously, I'm saying it for comedic effect. All right. She's seen Virgin River and Bridgerton on Netflix. Yeah. I have no idea even what uh, Virgin River is, so. Well, I do enjoy Bridgerton, but then again, I probably would enjoy Virgin River, too. I just haven't gotten around to actually bothering to watch it. I don't think there is some type of romantic comedy slash, like, overly sappy romantic story that I haven't enjoyed even the like really bad ones that Sarah watches on the Hallmark channel around Christmas, even those I find somewhat appealing and I find something in there that I can watch, but let's just not go there. I have much more important things to do with my time. 
Impact significance. Five again for the industry. It was a notable significant marker for the actor studio as being a funnel for great American actors going for the 50s, 60s, and 70s, as you mentioned. You can't take away its significance in the awards category, given how much it pretty much swept the Oscars that year, and was immediately known as a classic American film almost from the moment it was released. In today's terms, it would have been a top 10 movie of 1954. I think it was number nine overall. It was well-received by most of the critics, and it would have finished with over $100 million in today's film-adjusted inflation gross. So I'll even go with a four for audience in addition to the five, of course, for industry for a nine overall. Well, I have five for industry and for the public. Um, It made 10 times its budget. That's pretty darn good. It had significant impact. It furthered the careers of uh, Brando and Carl Malden. I think it helped uh, propel Rod Steiger into other roles. I think it did a very good job, again, with the actor's studio. And with the public, I think it made a lot of people more aware of this type of acting and uh, the enjoyment of this type of acting. So I went with five for industry, four for the public for a nine. Did you need help with the math? Not on this category, but I did forget to give an average for the last one. Uh, That was a 7.5, and it's an obvious nine on the average for this one for us. Okay. Let's move to novelty. This is the first real application of the actor studio method acting across an entire cast of a major movie. The subject matter was also novel in the face of everything that was going on historically, Kazan's place in that story, and that this is mostly based on a true story that happened outside of that but a confluence of different events that all contributed towards the making of this movie. In fact, I heard from an interview with Spike Lee that I mentioned earlier that this was actually supposed to be filmed in Brooklyn, but the Longshoremen's Union threatened to kill both Kazan and Brando, so it was moved to New Jersey. So given that there were real-life stakes, there were politics galore with this film, and that there was a pressure for this thing to actually perform and do well, and inside of that pressure cooker, you turn out one of the great American classics, I feel it is on par then with some of our most novel films that we've had so far. So I will top it with our rankings at a 9.5. The only thing that gave me a step down is is because it's a gangster film. And we had done so many different, there was a whole genre of gangster films. Not like this, but the fact is it was organized crime and heavies and all that. And for that reason, I only gave it a half point down. And so I went with a 9.5. So again, do you need help with the math? I do not. It is a 9.5 between us. Classicness, your category. Well, this one was kind of a odd one for me. I didn't see too much that was over the top. I mean, there were minorities in the Longshoremen's Union. We have one strong female lead. The only thing I could say is is that uh, the classicness to some extent gets lost because I I don't think that uh, the public in this age really grasps 
unions and what unions were or what they were about at the time, as well as how organized crime was involved and what was going on with organized crime. So I had to give it a few points down for that because I, I don't think it's makes it, it has a certain resonance yet today that I, I think takes away a little bit of its classicness. So I went with an eight. You do make a good point on the unions. It's something I hadn't necessarily considered. And I thought for sure that you'd go on the standpoint of, you know, the diversity of the cast or a strong female lead or some other things. To me, there is one bothersome scene in this movie, and that's when Terry kind of forces himself on Edie. It's certainly not a big deal in 1954 where you could almost legitimately beat your wife without consequences, and especially given that he had just played a wife beater a couple of movies before this. But definitely not something you can do today, and it does stick out in my mind. Kind of the same way that every time James Bond does it in a movie, it kind of sticks out for me. Well, I mean, in fact, the term wife beater uh, for the type of t-shirt, which is an A, it's called an A-shirt, and they're referred to as wife beaters because Brando wore one in Streetcar Named Desire and <laughs> because he beats his wife and beats Blanche and, well, rapes Blanche and blah, 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 sister-in-law. That's why it's referred to that as a wife beater. But anyway. How is there only one black man on the docks? I recognize it's 1954, but New Jersey had no black people? <laughs> I mean, this is post-Great Migration. I, I know. Outside of those, the fact that this is still held up as one of the great acting performance and that this still has some real-world applications, I wouldn't say from the standpoint of the unions, but if you want to make a overture at like saying that the corruption within this could easily be placed on, let's say, for example, especially from where you and I come from politics— the Trump administration. I think you could very easily make a case that there are a couple of people that should have played the Terry Malloy role and kind of have reluctantly come around to that. So I believe this has an element of agelessness some 68 years after its release. And say what you will about the context of Kazan or Huac, I'll take the movie by itself on its own merits. And to me, this warrants an 8.5 since you still get the chills leading up to and through that final scene, or at least I do. Okay. So that's an 8.25 between us. Tonight we're not so different, you and I. Yeah. Rewatchability. This is, again, a necessary watch. I will place it on a slightly higher degree than maybe a few other films that we've recently covered that I've said something similar I think this is one that probably should be on a more recommended watch, and it really isn't a terribly difficult film to get through. It's kind of short. It has a couple of spots where it drags, but it's not too problematic, and it kind of gets in clean and works its way through, and it's one of the great American classics. It's just never going to be on a favorites list of mine anytime soon, and so I went with a 7.5. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well... Did you go with a 7.5? Yes, I did. Oh. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's one that I, again, I, uh, it's a fairly easy watch, but it's not a comfortable watch for me. 
It's a film that I know I should watch and I enjoy watching when I do. But again, it's got to be something that I find easy to watch or something that I can just slide into no matter what my mood is to get it past an eight. And as a result, I went with a seven because of that. This is something I'd have to push myself to watch or have to be in the right frame of mood. So that's where the seven comes from. Audience score on this one, only an 82% for Google users, but a 95% from Rotten Tomato users for an 8.85 average overall. So to recap the categories, we had a 7.5 for Legacy, 9 for Impact Significance, 9.5 for Novelty, 8.25 for Classicness, a 7.5 for Rewatchability, and an 8.85 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 50.6 and placing it between Wall-E and Fargo on the list. Hmm. Again, not two films that I would have necessarily placed around this or compared them directly to, but we seem to find that every week. It's what happens when you put multiple genres together. Remaining questions for you. Well, the implication is the final scene is that Terry becomes the leader of the Longshoremen, and Johnny Friendly is no longer has any power or control. He's just shouting in the wind, more or less. Can you really see Terry as the leader? I don't think it's so much as the leader per se. He certainly doesn't hold the intelligent organization in his hands to be able to do that. But you can look to him as the symbolic leader, more or less, of your cause. That if you unite together, especially because really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the union wants. They were just the organizing party you have to get the ship unloaded. And knowing that there is another guy that is directly responsible for how you get the payment of everything, they could unite against Friendly and just ignore him and become their own type of union regardless of anything that he had to say. So I don't look at him so much as the strategic or necessarily the next union leader, so much as I look at him in the final scene as a symbolic leader of the struggle they've gone through from the beginning to the end of the film. Okay. The other one is, is do you think friendly fried? Meaning? Well, I mean, he makes a comment about that. He's uh, thinks he's going to end up in the electric chair when he's putting the guns in the safe. He's talking about how they're going to come. I can't remember the exact wordage or language he used, but I think he said the hot seat. Yeah. Which means, you know, the electric chair. Well, I mean, he if you can directly finger him and those guys all roll on him, which I'm not sure that they were guaranteed to do in the 1950s, he is directly responsible for several murders. I mean, you can make an easy prosecution of that, and if they all flipped, and he becomes basically the responsible party for all of the activity that was going on on the docks. I mean, he's at least got two murders on his hands during the course of the movie. Three. Three? Yeah, because you have Joey, you have Dugan, and you have Charlie. Oh, sure, sure. I forgot Dugan there for a second. All right, so three, but you know he's obviously responsible for more than that. Yeah. So it's more than likely because you could basically put him as a more or less serial killer before the term was popularized. Yeah. To me, there are two questions, though, that stick out from this movie that just don't seemingly make sense. 
if you're the leader of the mob and yes, you've worked through intimidation and such beforehand, why would you actually kill Charlie? You're just more likely than not going to set Terry off and set him against you. I don't know. I would have held Charlie under threat, but you're basically disposing of a guy that's been extremely loyal to you because of the actions of his brother. That doesn't make much sense to me. But then again, you've always told me as a former defense attorney that criminals are not smart. No, they're not. Well, well, <laughs> they can be. But the problem is, is, is that they don't, smart criminals don't get caught. The problem is, is that a lot of times they just keep doing things over and over. And if they stopped after the first couple of times, nobody would figure it out. It's when they keep going back to the well doing the same things over and over that people figure out what they're doing. And that's stupid or the epitome of stupidity. The other thing that doesn't make much sense to me is how Edie is actually in love with Terry. I can understand why Terry, a guy who's had nothing good go on in his life, can fall in love with Edie very quickly. But she seems to make, what, two or three times together all of a sudden into this like grandiose relationship. And furthermore, she knows everything that he's done and everything he's about. And yet somehow she still loves him anyway. To me, that just doesn't make sense. Well, sometimes there's just an attraction. It doesn't make sense necessarily. There's a, just a, a chemistry. Sometimes you, no, or it takes years to develop it. Sometimes it takes just a matter of a few weeks. Okay. I just, I'm not necessarily buying it. I didn't think they had great chemistry in this movie. Mm. Okay. Final thoughts for the week. Uh, with some level of reluctance saying that I'm looking forward to our next movie. It's one of my favorites. I, I actually did try to reach out to Mel to see if he would be at all interested in being on the show. He never responded through Twitter. He probably never got the message, but I thought, you know, it's worth a shot. But but I'm, I'm just, again, I don't want people to take it the wrong way because it's really a film about laughing at racism. That's that's really a large portion of this film is just laughing at racism. The jokes are very racially insensitive, but that's why. So anyway, that's just starting my disclaimer now early. So for those that maybe didn't know, we're discussing Blazing Saddles next week, just so you have the context behind that statement. You, you, you did mention it earlier on, but if people are skipping around. Oh, well, they shouldn't skip around. They should start and do it linearly. Then they wouldn't have a problem, but okay. Anyway, I'll just say I'm grateful to have another week with you. This film is going to be 68 sometime next week after this episode releases, and we have a lot of movies coming up yet for the end of the year. For whatever reason, I'm a crazy man, and I went through and scheduled the back half of the year. But we have, from now, I think, so let's say next week, 
through the middle of September, we have guests galore. And I just had somebody contact me again today to do another guest spot that may fill up our entire September as well. So we may have two full months of guest spots currently going on the show. All guests selected movies and stuff that we want to discuss, but we seem to bring out a little bit more of ourselves when we have a third person to really kind of work off of. And so it'll be interesting. I do enjoy when it's just the two of us sometimes, especially some of these bigger movies like this one, but it'll be interesting to really get to know some of our guests and give us a different angle to present you for the next few weeks. True. Some of our previous guests I kind of miss having conversations with again too, so wouldn't be bad to try to make suggestions for some of our previous guests. Outside of the family, that is. Although I don't mind our family, it's just, you know what I mean. No, I really don't. Well, I don't either, but anyway. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be finally getting to a movie that we've wanted to cover since the beginning of the show, but have been too scared to touch until now. Blazing Saddles from 1974, directed by Mel Brooks, starring Gene Wilder, Cleavon Little, Harvey Korman, Madeline Kahn, and Alex Karras. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in and are fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.